All right, welcome to the show. I, that we are in the ED now. I'm Dr. Rebecca Griffith, and I have with me today Dr. Adam Pearson. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so happy that you're here today, and and also happy Occupational Therapy Month. You are an occupational therapist by background, and I can't wait to hear a little bit more about you and what you do. Sure. Yeah. 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 Just a just an introduction. Um, I am here in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I was born and raised here in St. Louis, uh, went to school at Washington University School of Medicine uh, program in occupational therapy, graduated in 2011. And um, since then, I've been doing a combination of mental health, community work, um, a, a little bit of a little bit of everything uh, since then. But right now, my job is working at Peter and Paul Community Services which is a homeless services organization. And uh, our mission is we walk with people facing homelessness on their journey to lifelong stability. And so um, I serve as the chief operating officer where I oversee uh, all six of our programs, housing and shelter related. Um, we operate 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So there's never a dull day. <laughs> no, and I think for people who are listening who are like, okay, I can see that. How does an occupational therapist find their way into this role? That's a good question. So uh, I started off in the field working at an, uh, an organization called The Bridge. And The Bridge was a drop-in day shelter for individuals who are homeless and housing insecure. And so uh, this was in downtown St. Louis, and essentially we operated in the basement of a church. <clears throat> and we had um, this big cafeteria where people would just come in and get coffee, lunch, breakfast, maybe watch some TV. And um, people would just kind of sit around and, and get out of the weather, a uh, mm -hmm. very essential service. And so the bridge at one point said, you know what? We need somebody to engage these people in some sort of activities. Occupation. Occupation, yes. And so they uh, they partnered with WashU, Washington University, which was just down the street. And they said, you know what? We've heard about occupational therapy. Is there somebody you could send over to start doing this work of engaging people in some of these activities? Um, and so they sent me over. And so that was kind of my first uh, job as a therapist. I was a, a clinician with WashU, um, and part of my time was spent at the bridge developing programming and, uh, you know, first doing a needs assessment. So, you know, these people needed help with uh, job resumes and, and applications, um, interview skills, um, computer skills, planning what their next goal was going to be for housing stability, um, that sort of thing. And so I did a lot of that development. And, um, you know, I've always sort of leaned towards non-traditional type OT. I think typically when you see OT, it's a lot of us in hospitals, mm -hmm. nursing homes, schools, home health, all of those are great. Um, I'm really interested in, in the community. And so blending some of this life skills work and this lens for occupation and building skills with occupation with people who didn't have a home and didn't really have resources. So that's that's been interesting to me since day one. 
And the bridge really sort of gave me that springboard for how to get into it. I love that. Okay, so the other thing that I heard you say when you're talking about the mission for where you work now is that you are walking with people on your journey, on their journey. You're not driving their journey. Mm-hmm. You're not fixing anything. You're like really traveling with them. So so talk to me about that because yeah. that's a mindset I would like us to start this conversation with. Yeah, for sure. So um, with, with, uh, with a lot of our folks, we understand that they – most people who are unhoused are unhoused for a temporary amount of time. Um, you know, more than 50% of people who experience homelessness are in and out of homelessness within about three months. And so a lot of these folks have some of the skills that they need to get out of their predicament, <clears throat> whether it is, you know, finding an apartment or saving up for, you know, the deposit for a new apartment um, whether it is, you know, figuring out how they're going to store their belongings, connecting with family to arrange their next housing arrangement. Um, a lot of people have, have some skills that we can build on in the process. And certainly the individuals who have been on the streets for quite some time, even though they lack some of those skills to, to try to be independent, mm-hmm. uh, they have a lot of strengths that we can build on. And so the idea is that we as a team can help facilitate the process to get somebody stably housed, but they're vital partners in the endeavor. Um, there's nothing that we can do as a team individually without the client that would make their next steps successful. And so they're partners with us. You know, um, we, we create goals with them. There's certainly some goals that we want to work on. Um, but we, we really lean on the client to help drive the process forward. You know, somebody is, is in one of our, um, housing programs and they say, you know what, I feel like I need a little bit more support. We won't try to push against that too much. Right. Like if, if they feel as though they need more support in another setting, we want to walk with them and help them figure out what that looks like. If it's sort of a step down unit step up unit, whatever it takes to help them feel empowered Mm -hmm. so that they can then take that next step on their own to move out in the community. That's what we want to do. I love that. And I think one of the analogies that I've heard is it's like a trampoline, right? Like we can, we can provide the trampoline, but you have to actually jump in order for it to work. So I, I like that. But so as a physical therapist who practices primarily in the emergency department, a number of my patients are unhoused. And it, it seems to me like being unhoused contributes greatly to people's health outcomes. And I'm sure you know way more about that than I do. What can you share with us about like, how does homelessness affect people's health? It affects it in a lot of different ways. And so I think the, you know, the driver of homelessness nationwide is and has been for quite some time, the lack of affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And so as a corollary to that, a lot of individuals on the streets just don't have any money or they might be on a fixed income uh, where it is not a sufficient amount of income to pay the rent and utilities each month. Um, a lot of individuals who do end up finding housing or what is considered, um, you know, they're considered to be in housing poverty or housing poor. 
Uh, those are two terms that some of the literature has used. Basically, they're paying more than you know one third or fifty percent of their income towards rent and utilities. And so, if you have those sorts of constraints, um, chances are you're not really able to afford a lot of the health care that you need to live a healthy life as well. And so. Um, these are individuals that are traditionally living in areas that might be underserved with primary care physicians. Mm -hmm. um, certain states might have particular laws about who is eligible for Medicaid. Maybe some states have not expanded Medicaid. And so there are only certain you know, subpopulations that can get consistent health care services. And so um, in addition to the poverty piece, they might not be able to afford the medication they need. Um, they might not be able to afford, you know, good, healthy, nutritious food For sure. uh, that is, you know, not overly processed and comes out of a box. And so um, so we there are a lot of health conditions that go along with that. So folks might have diabetes you know, type two diabetes. So we see often um, because people are on their feet a lot and move on. Did I say feats? <laughs> yeah, I thought, you know, I have two feats. I think feats is perfect. You know, multiple pairs of feet. Um, and so because they're on their feet a lot, they might have foot pain, um, you know, decubitus ulcers because, you know, they might have wet socks or wet shoes all the time. Um, and there's just kind of a lot of friction on their feet. Uh, people might have lower back pain, which is a common issue that we hear about. Folks also have low vision. And so if you're always outside and you might not have sunglasses, um, then too much light can end up affecting your eyes. And so that could affect visual acuity, the amount of brightness that you're able to take in. And certainly that affects the way you're able to navigate computers, read yeah. books, job applications, and all of that. Um, any healthcare that healthcare condition that you might associate with aging we also see that in a younger population. Um, and so, you know, any uh, Parkinson's disease, for example, you know, there are a lot of individuals on the streets that might have Parkinson-like uh, symptoms, um, you know, different types of dementia, mild cognitive impairment, certain cancers we see more often than others. Uh, your typical, you know, heart disease, hypertension, all of those things. So, you know, one of the, um, the, the data points that I point to a lot that sheds light on the severity of a lot of these health conditions is that the average life expectancy for somebody who is homeless in the United States is between 42 and 52 years of age, which is a reduction of like one third. Half, it feels like half. Almost half, right? So that is that is a significant reduction of lifespan oh. simply for not having housing. And this isn't just unique to the United States. When you look across the developed nations out there, um, whether it's Sweden, Germany, um, Italy, they also experience a significant reduction of lifespan just for not having housing. And so it is the health conditions that people have that are exacerbated by lack of, um, you know, primary care and consistent access to medical care. Um, plus the fact that they might not have medications. Plus it is extremely stressful to be on the streets having yes. to your shoulder at all times. And so 
a lot of individuals have trauma and have experienced trauma. And so it's all of that, all of that at the same time that just makes for a, a very precarious uh, sort of um, healthcare and, and health profile situation for people. And so, you know, the approach that I have in, in my mind is that uh, if you're doing homeless services with, with individuals on the streets, you're kind of on the clock, right? It's very sensitive work that is um, that is time sensitive is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a myriad of, of different health conditions that we might find. And um, we certainly need more resources. Wow, that's a that so much of that. I think I, I knew some of that, but so much of that it never even occurred to me. Some of the things that I see are that, like you said, there is no access to care, so they come to the emergency department because it's the safety net. It's the only place they can get care, but that's not obviously the best place to get the holistic supportive care that you need. And often we can fill some prescriptions for with with vouchers, things like that, to get people kind of a back set up to that initial baseline, but then that only lasts for so long. So it's just like all these like temporary fixes. The other thing I notice is extraordinary fatigue and that yeah. my patients, they, they are exhausted. And I think part of that's because like you said, there's, there's not necessarily a safe place to be. There's not a safe place to sleep. There's not a place where they can feel comfortable. And so when I have patients who are in the emergency department and they just are sleeping. I think there's this perception that patients are fine because they're sleeping. But I think for me, it's like they finally feel safe enough to rest for a minute. And so I think there there is that, like if patients are coming to the emergency department just fatigued and needing a safe place to be, I don't know how to like provide that for those patients in that setting where you have to rush everything. Yeah, and, and that's tough, right? That's the that's the uh, the million dollar question, and I think a lot of cases it's literally the million dollar question because it ends up costing emergency departments a lot of money um, having people cycle through. Um, to piggyback on your point about the fatigue, every now and then, because of my role, I stop by, you know, swing by our programs a lot just to check in, and I might you know, work at the front desk every now and then if needed or clean or, you know, do a med pass if that's what we're doing. So it's a lot of different types of work that we do here at Peter and Paul. Um, but it reminds me of a client at our one of our emergency shelters. Um, and I was working overnight. Everybody else in the shelter was sleeping, but he was sitting on his bed. He was just sitting edge of bed, looking around the room, looking around the room. And I asked him, you know, aren't you tired? Don't you want to lay down? And he said, well, traditionally he sleeps during the daytime yeah. because that's when he feels safe because he knows that there are more people around who could possibly look out for him. At night is when he has to have his eyes open just to keep an eye out for potential threats. Um, and it's, it's not that he felt like he was in danger in the shelter. It's just that his routine is sleeping in the daytime. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of these, and I think that could possibly be one of the accelerants for, uh, all of the, the medical and healthcare sequelae that these guys have is that there is very little rest 
that is not often paired with um, concern about your physical health. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's rough all the way around. I think to your point about emergency departments, um, one thing that I think a lot of emergency departments are figuring out, at least within the past 10 years or so, is that uh, there are opportunities for partnership with mm-hmm. homeless services organizations that could be mutually beneficial. And so there are a couple of local emergency departments that are exploring a housing arrangement with providers, whether it is permanent support housing, transitional housing, or emergency shelters. In some cases, it might even be a nursing home mm-hmm. um, on a temporary basis. But they realize exactly like you mentioned that there are some folks who use emergency departments, not necessarily for emergent care, um, but because they want somewhere to be where they can get some rest, close their eyes, maybe get some snacks. Um, And so I think that the emergency department's approach to it often depends on what the community writ large is doing. And so if if, uh, you look at the community and you find that there are opportunities for partnership with an organization like a homeless services organization that could offer somebody a bed Uh on demand. Um, There could be certain fee structures or partnership agreements or pay arrangements that are made so that when somebody comes into the ER for a nap uh, or to get some coffee, they could be referred to an organization like that. Well, I don't feel like we have that that so much of an issue. I just mean like when patients are coming in with medical concerns, they are so tired that when they're there, like they might be there for low back pain, but then they're like, just, you know, can actually rest and fall asleep. And and I, I always feel really bad having to like interrupt that. I, I find that we don't have as many folks who are coming in just for a space to be because we actually do have a shelter on our campus. We have both One. a day shelter and a night shelter, which we partner with. So I love what you're talking about, that partnership. How do we, how, if somebody doesn't have that, how do they provide those connections? How do they reach out? Is that a social work issue? Should they talk to an occupational therapist? How do they start building those bridges? I think it can start with uh, a number of different partners. I think um, identifying the person in the department who oversees discharges. Um, and Maybe case is, management. Yeah, case management, whether it's a social worker, uh, case manager, occupational therapist, nurse, whoever is in charge of the discharge process. Um, I think that's a, a, a great step for them to identify part, potential partners in the community to reach out to that might have some shelter capacity. Okay. Um, so in some communities, there is what's called a continuum of care. And um, in homeless services, what that is, is a consortium of organizations that provide housing, supportive services, and shelter beds for the unhoused population. Um, and so the continuum of care often you know, coordinates and, and talks a lot amongst each other to identify shelter beds that might be opened up one night. And so I think uh, a decent first step would be identifying the local, excuse me, the local continuum of care. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could just be a matter of Googling continuum of care and then typing in your zip code. Perfect. Uh, 
And so they look that up and then figure out who the contact person is for the continuum of care. Uh, typically, there are regular meetings. And so for St. Louis, we have a county COC and then a city COC. And so we have different meetings where we talk amongst each other about capacity, service issues, workflow issues, data keeping, record keeping issues. Um, and I think the hospital has a role on the continuum of care. And certainly uh, representatives from the emergency departments have a role on the continuum of care mm -hmm. because you all see the clients we serve. And so um, I think in that regard, it's mutually beneficial in that uh, the case manager or you know discharge professional has an opportunity to figure out what beds might be available at a certain point in time. Um, and can also build relationships and get some phone numbers and contacts and say, hey, you know, this guy has been utilizing our services 15 times in the past month. What mm -hmm. do you have for him that could be beneficial? Um, and there's also conversation about accessibility as well. And so there are a lot of clients we serve that have a hard time navigating steps. Yes. Um, wheelchair, or as I mentioned before, they might have low vision. And so you can learn about the different organizations and systems in the community that can support people with those particular issues um, by learning about the local continuum of care and just kind of introducing yourself. And then I think at that point, it's a matter of setting up a, a process if there's capacity. And so um, I know for us, you know, we have a number of clients in our emergency shelters who have been frequent flyers in, in emergency departments at um, in the evenings. And so we work with the with the emergency departments to just talk, keep sort of an, an ongoing dialogue about who's there, can we send an Uber? Um, you know, do they have a COVID positive test that we need to know about? You know, what sort of other special arrangements might we need to make for this person? And so um, you keep the dialogue open. Now, sometimes they, sometimes a community might not have a lot of capacity for that. Yeah. And I think that's the really tricky area. Um, you know, emergency department doesn't have somewhere to refer out to, the person is unhoused. And I think it's the question for the hospital, um, what capacity do you have for overflow possibly to handle this person for maybe one more night or two more yes. nights? Um, you know, are there any empty rooms that are not being used that are adjacent to the emergency department? Do we care if they just kind of camp out in the emergency department um, waiting room if they promise not to disrupt service or anything like that? So those are conversations that I think administration could be having with the providers um, to figure out what the capacities are locally. I think that's all really helpful information. One issue that I run into is my job, obviously, is to get patients out of the emergency department. Yeah. And, and sometimes my job is to decide, does this person need placement? So a barrier that I run into commonly with this patient population is if this patient really does need subacute rehab or acute rehab based on a medical condition or trauma, because I have so many patients who are unhoused who experience assault, trauma, motor vehicle collisions, 
all of those things, or they've been hypoxic because they can't afford their oxygen. And now all of their medical conditions have spiraled out of control and they need rehab. They need dedicated rehab, but I cannot get a facility to accept these patients because they have no discharge plan. What's, what recommendations do you have for us to help get these patients the care that they need so that they're not necessarily stuck in the, at the acute hospital, which we know they're not going to get as much rehab as they could in a rehab facility in that situation. How do I make a case to get those patients the care that they need? That's tricky. Um, it is. So I think I think in the past when I've worked, um, I did a stint with um, I did some travel therapy and did a stint in inpatient and outpatient rehab. And one of the conversations that we would have often is, can they be elevated? to a, can they be elevated or downgraded to a slightly different level of care for a facility that had capacity? And then you work with that person to identify goals that are compatible to the facility, but also could be, you know, some some easy goals for the client to work on at that facility. And so maybe they don't need, you know, the full services of a residential care facility. Um, but that's, those are the only options at that point. Mm-hmm. And so the question might be with the staff, we have this individual, um, he needs somewhere to be. We think there could be space to work on a portion of these goals. Can we have a conversation about temporary placement or something like that? I think ultimately, um, the issue that we run across a lot is capacity and that a lot of the a lot of the communities just don't have a respite care type facility where people can go to, which is something that we are exploring here at Peter and Paul. Um, so we just got a, a significant amount of funding uh, from the American Rescue Plan to build a new shelter. Mm. Part of that new shelter, we hope to have a respite wing. Yes. take individuals from emergency departments who exactly like you said did not really have a discharge plan that included housing mm-hmm. um, but they still need some manner of observation and assistance with things and perhaps they are not quite at the level where they need a nursing home or assisted living but they need some support they might have sutures um they might have um you know, a catheter that they need to navigate. And so we would be able to take them in as part of our respite wing. And, you know, it would be monitored by at least one nurse, occupational therapist. So those are some of the things that we're thinking about. I think until there are opportunities like that, I think it's a matter of working and trying to compromise with any local housing um, or local um residential care facilities or assisted living programs mm-hmm. that might be available and then maybe stepping down some goals or sort of titrating up some goals depending on what the needs are um, that's not a great solution but to be honest with you that's just kind of the system that we have unfortunately. Yeah. you know like until we can provide housing for anybody who needs it um and that'd be great yeah, until we have, you know, sufficient respite programs for the people who fall through the cracks, I think it's a matter of figuring out if partnering organizations are willing to bend a little bit 
and be a little bit malleable with some of the discharge discussions. Um, so I'm sorry if that's not extremely helpful, but that's just kind of the system. Where we're at. I mean, I'll take any anything I can get. Another question is, what is the feasibility of having home health services at shelters? At shelters? Yeah. So we haven't really dealt with that too much. Um, and I don't know if it's a, a matter of eligibility or that these individuals just don't really have the insurance to pay for home health. Fair. Um, but certainly that's, you know, that's something that should be discussed. I think for us, we're more than willing to um, accommodate that sort of thing. It's just not a question that we run into a lot. I think that what we have run into is um, organizations out there that are more geared towards community mental health. And so they carry this load of clients in the community who might be unhoused or who might uh, be housing insecure. And so they're bouncing around from house to house. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, that could be an opportunity for one of the discharge coordinators is to find organizations in the community that do that community mental health work um, if there is a mental health diagnosis and plug them in as a client. Um, those, in those cases, a lot of times, those organizations might at least have funding for basic medical care and assistance with medication management. And so we do have that quite often in our shelter and housing programs where those organizations will come in and assist with medication, assist with wow. care coordination, um, even if they are in a shelter, and talk with us about you know different sort of accommodations that might be needed based on the person's history. And uh, so in that regard, it's I don't want to say it's similar to home health, but it is a team of people who are attempting to meet that person's need um, at their location you know, or at the location in the community, whether it be a shelter, uh, whether it's a transitional housing program or permanent supportive housing program that we operate or that somebody else operates. So, um, so I think that's one of those opportunities for collaboration as well with a community mental health partner. I think that's amazing. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about were the mental health considerations for these patients. How can we provide appropriate trauma-informed care and what do we really need to know to make these encounters successful, compassionate, and valuable to the patient? Yes. So trauma-informed care is an extremely um, important framework for what we do here at Peter and Paul. Um, I'm very happy to see that other organizations are finding that it's a, a very, um, you know, utilitarian approach and a kind approach and a gracious approach to working with some of our clients. So I think um, shifting the, the framework to, you know, uh, what happened to you, right? So you're on the streets 24 hours a day, or you've been unhoused for one year, five years, 10 years. Um, what happened to you in the community that affects the way that you're able to see the world or engage with people? Um, how can we best meet your needs? Are there certain things that you're extremely concerned about? Do you feel safe in this particular room? And so you start to open up with these conversations um, and that helps to build rapport a bit, a bit easier. I think what's often challenging is making sure that you're having these open 
in honest conversations when there are perhaps trust issues in mm-hmm. the beginning. And so um, I know that one of the luxuries that emergency departments typically don't have is time. Mm-hmm. They don't have a ton of time to spend with patients, but to the best of your ability, you know, I would encourage anybody who works in an emergency department to take some time with everybody if possible, but with the unhoused population in particular, to just hear the story and to find out what brought them here to the emergency department. It could be that they are escaping somebody who's trying to do them harm. Um, It could be somebody who's in a domestic violence situation and they just don't know where else to go. Maybe they lived in a shelter before, but something really bad happened there that they're not comfortable with. And I so, do run into that a lot, that like yeah. reticence to return. And and by asking that question, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Are you willing to go try a different shelter? Like, what is, what is the concern? Because we do have this available to you, but I do have patients that are not willing because of past experiences. So that's really helpful. Yeah. And, and again, I think that can help to... I think it can help to kind of steer the discussion about what happens at discharge. And so, for example, if um, if you you take the time to understand why they might not feel comfortable in a shelter, uh, and you learn that perhaps uh, somebody tried to attack them in the shower, if you're discharging to a shelter, that's a conversation that you can have with that shelter team that is going to mm. be receiving that person. Hey, there's a really traumatic event that happened in the shower. Can we think of any reasonable accommodations that could be made? Um, you know, specific shower times just for that one person, um, where they would feel comfortable, you know, toileting and bathing, doing what they need to do without 30 other people around, because that can be really intimidating. Yeah. So I think either way, you have the trauma-informed discussions with that person and you learn more about them. And I think that can inform perhaps which shelters you might avoid um, or which types of living arrangements that could be avoided. Um, so yeah, I, I would say if, if there's an opportunity to center the conversational approach and the overall treatment approach to this, this particular population to a trauma-informed care approach, um, that, you know, respects people's backgrounds and their potential history with trauma, it can really go a long way in informing what the next steps are as far as the discharge goes. And then I think also um, it helps to maybe frame some of the behavior change. And so, for example, we had a client uh, at one of our shelters who would go to the emergency department a few times a week. It turns out that he didn't really have anything wrong with him. It's just that he didn't know how to do his laundry. And he knew that if he went to the emergency department with a couple of shirts and pairs of pants, he could hand it off to the staff and say, hey, I need some help with this. And so so it's like, so then that opens up the question, okay, so, you know, why can't you do your laundry at the shelter? Is it an equipment issue, Um, you know, do you, are you trying to avoid a certain laundromat? Like what's going on? And so I think if you have conversations that are very much based around, you know, tell us about your experience in a non-judgmental way, then you could learn a little bit of information that help it, you know, that might help influence the treatment plan. 
Those sound a lot like OT questions, is what those yes. sound like. <laughs> Tell me about your activities of daily living. What are you yeah. having trouble with? Does anybody right. help you with these things? And there is research that shows that occupational therapists in the emergency department specifically are beneficial to our unhoused patient population. And I think because that is there's that mindset on cognitive issues, vision, mobility, as well as like what function are you struggling with? Like how are you having trouble interacting and engaging with your community? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I've got one more question for you. Sure. And I need to know if this is a myth or not, because I have patients tell me that the bigger the assistive device they have, the further up in the line they can move at the shelter. So I'll have patients come in and tell me they need to have a wheelchair because then they'll definitely be able to get into the shelter and that wheelchairs go first, then walkers, then canes, then crutches. Is there any veracity to that? That's interesting. I don't know if there's any veracity, but I am very curious as to what those conversations look like amongst clients. Um, yeah, and, and, and I'm told that their, their assistive devices get stolen because of that. So I'll have a patient who definitely needs a wheelchair, but then they will come out of their wheelchair to lie on a bench or to lie on the ground so they can actually like be in supine and rest. Yeah. Someone will steal their wheelchair. Then they have to call an ambulance and come to the emergency department because they can't mobilize. And then I can't get them another wheelchair because we just like their insurance had just paid for one. But now they can't mobilize and they can't get into the shelter. But there's this this concept out there, at least in this community, that if you have an assistive device, you can cut the line. So my patients who really need one are having theirs stolen. So I would say uh, the answer that, uh, you know, the boilerplate answer that we've learned in OT school for literally every question is it depends. Yes, PT too. <laughs> Therapists unite. Yeah. So same thing. So um I would say it, it often depends on the facility and what the policies are. And so I know for us, um, we have the way we receive um, referrals is through what's called the Get Help app. I don't know if anybody uses that, you know, for, for whoever uh, is yeah. listening, but um, the Get Help app is essentially a an app that coordinates referrals for community benefit organizations like shelters and so um we get a referral through the get help app and it is from that referral uh that we make our decisions on who to accept um and for for a number of cases it is for a number of cases it is a first come first serve basis and so we don't necessarily look at uh, the amount of mobility impairment or what type of adaptive equipment they use, because we can't forget that there are a lot of other types of disabilities yes. than physical, right? And so um, now we can do some screening, right? So if somebody comes in and we find that they have a walker, well, at that point, we can definitely do some screening and figure out, well, we have bunk beds, so you might not be able to use a top bunk. For example, so yeah. we, and and I think that's just kind of a broader discussion about general system wide shelter accessibility, um, but I wouldn't say that we we screen based on the type of uh, adaptive equipment that people use. What I will say is that some shelters are naturally better suited for certain types of health conditions than others, um, and certain uh, housing arrangements are a little bit 
better for certain health conditions than others. And so for us, we have one shelter that is just one story. And so if we, if we get a referral for somebody who is a wheelchair user, we typically refer out to that particular shelter, right? Makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, the other shelter that we have is in the basement of a church. And this is one of the reasons why we're trying to build a new shelter that's fully accessible, but it's in the basement of a church. And so you might have to walk down some steps. Um, that might not work for everybody. And so we typically get the clients who have fewer mobility impairments to that shelter. Um, I think it just kind of depends. Now, what I will say is there's a program called coordinated entry. Um, and if you are a homeless services provider, you might know about this, but coordinated entry is a way to prioritize almost triage certain people for permanent housing or vouchers or transitional housing. And so for coordinated entry, there often are assessments that the client will do with the case manager or social worker or OT or whoever, um, where they look at uh, mental health acuity, physical disabilities, uh, the amount of time spent on the streets, perhaps even literacy, they look at sort of a, a holistic picture of the client mm -hmm. and the clients who score the lowest on um, on those assessments might be prioritized for permanent housing in the community. But that system is a shared system at the continuum of care level. Got it. Right. So that's not like an individual um, organization type process. This is a system-wide assessment and uh, coordination process. So I would say that would be the case for them. You know, if, if they do demonstrate a lot of mobility impairment, they might be better candidates for the coordinated, coordinated entry placement. That makes a lot of sense. My question about that, though, is once we get those individuals into that stable housing, if they still need physical assistance and physical support and healthcare support, can they still get that in, in that permanent housing? Or once they get that housing, do they lose all those benefits? I think um, that depends on what sort of health plan that they have. Um, if hmm. they Payer-centered care is always, right? Yes. Oh, don't get me started. So, yeah, that's one of my biggest soapboxes. Payer-centered yeah. care, not patient-centered care. So, so, and again, like it kind of depends. And so Peter and Paul, we recognize that when somebody moves into housing in the community um, and they might not have Medicaid, there are very limited options for the types of care that they can get in home. Yeah. And so the, I think there need to be conversations about what our funding allows here. Um, even though we have, you know, OT in-house, could we take that OT, put them in the community for a client or two on a transitional type basis mm -hmm. to talk about strengthening, to talk about uh, home accommodations or, mo or uh, modifications. Um, so it's kind of like an assessment of the scope of care that the individual organization is willing to provide. Um, and that's often based on funding, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a question that you can ask. Like if they are uh, plugged into a community organization, you can ask, hey, is it possible that you like check up on this person for a month or at least, you know, let us know what he needs so that we can follow up with him in a month or two? Um, those are conversations you can have, but it's, it's almost always centered on funding. 
the story of the, our entire life, right? Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. I learned so much about homelessness in general, how we can best support these patients that when they're coming into the emergency department, what what resources are available in the community. So what final thoughts do you want to leave people with as they practice in the emergency department with patients who are maybe experiencing homelessness? Yeah, I would say uh, our clients are just like anybody else. Um, they struggle with, you know, something on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, trauma is a huge factor in the way uh, that they engage in the community and engage with the provider that they're seeing. Um, I would say have a fair amount of grace if you can, mm. just because they might not be sleeping at night, they uh, might have faced some sort of physical threats in the past. There's a lot of inconsistency with housing in the community a lot of times, which causes a lot of stress. Yes. And so grace goes a long way in patience because uh, it can be very stressful not knowing where to turn. Yeah. Um, you're just a clinician who's trying to churn people out, um, they sense that and they know that and they might respond accordingly. So grace is good. Patience is good. If you can take your time, I would say take your time. I love that. And grace is good. I mean, I think that applies to every situation. Sure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was so nice to talk to you. You have been in the ED now and you're officially discharged. Thank you. <laughs>